to the Baker's Dozen Eve edition of Beyond the Pond. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to non-jam bands that we think that they will like. We love Fish, we are Fish fans, but the problem with Fish fans is all they listen to is Fish, and that's a dreary existence, so we're going to do something about it. This is our 10th episode. We've made it into double digits. We can't drink yet. We still can't vote, but we're getting somewhere. And we're going to focus this episode on the July 15th, 2017 Simple from Northerly Island in Chicago. Uh, this jam happened just about a week ago uh, at time uh, at airtime, and it was a fantastic uh, first weekend jam for Fish in their summer 2017 tour. Uh, We are going to explore this through a couple of different uh, themes, a few different songs, a few different bands, um, and we're going to chat a little bit about our thoughts on The Simple and a few songs that we think you guys will enjoy if you like The Simple. Some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include badass riffs, staccato funk, and is Fish 2015 back? Let's try to find out. Let's get to the fish. Simple from Northern Island in Chicago. So why cover this jam? Well, when we were talking about the first weekend and the first five shows of Summer Tour 2017, we really came to the conclusion that this was the most interesting jam from an absolutely stellar opening weekend of Fish 2017. This is 27 minutes long. It's multifaceted. This is the kind of jam that usually only comes later in a tour, and for it to come in the fourth set of the tour, second show, really portends big things with an MSG run looming. Yeah, I mean, this simple, well, first of all, this happened last Saturday. It was the second night of summer tour. But with this simple, once you get, uh, I guess, past the main simple theme and past the bliss, it kind of ends up being this really bass-heavy, like, progressive rock riff. And at one point, it sounds like they're clearly going to go right into Timberhoe, which would be cool in and of itself. But they push through to uh, some serious groove jamming. And they kind of end with a big major key peak and a flutter into Winter Queen. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's interesting in that it doesn't sound like anything you would expect from Simple nor anything you'd really think of as coming of a fish 3.0 jam. And usually with uh, most fish 3.0 jams and fish in general, you can kind of uh, like follow Trey from point A to point B. It's like a flow. You can listen. You can see how he gets there. You can see the gears moving. But with this sample, it's interesting because about 11 minutes, it kind of winds down to almost like almost nothingness. And you figure at that point, Trey will rip cord and they'll just go into something else. And then out of nowhere, 
Mike starts doing this really guttural bass riff, and then Trey comes back with this huge progressive rock riff that almost sounds like it could be composed. I mean, I almost think of more of, while this is a fish podcast, it almost sounds more like something Umphreys McGee would do, which is to say, play a composed bit, come to a complete stop, and then play something else entirely different and very proggy. So what it may lack from that point in continuity, it certainly makes up for in uh, power and inventiveness, I would say. I guess talking about the tour and this run in general, the overall significance, I think we both agreed that it was a very, very strong opening weekend of summer tour. Um, thinking we almost compared it to, I guess, other powerful openings were summer 1997, going from Virginia Beach to Raleigh to Atlanta. Uh, certainly summer 1998 with the Portland Meadows show, then the Gorge. And also uh, in summer 2012, kind of starting oddly on a Thursday night in Worcester, that show was a barn burn. They really mm-hmm. threw down at that show said that we're not messing around fish is back in 2012 and in summer of 2015 the first three shows uh from the ben shows and then shoreline especially was very good and then forum uh in los angeles those are all very strong opening weekends and we think that the three northerly island shows can practically stack up any of those yeah, and then absolutely when you add in what happened in Dayton on Tuesday night and when you add in uh, Pittsburgh on uh, Wednesday night. F yeah, Dayton. Absolutely mm. incredible second set in Dayton with Down With Disease, Ghost, and Wombat going pretty deep and uh, Pittsburgh having a fantastic Caspian and um, Mr. Completely return after 14 years. Um, just so you guys know, this is going to go live on Tuesday, uh, July 25th, night four of uh, the Baker's Dozen. So we're well aware we're not covering uh, the first weekend of um, uh, the Baker's Dozen. That will be in our next episode. Um, but uh, getting back to this first uh, five shows of the run here, lots of debuts, uh, something that we saw as well in um, – Summer 98, at least for the stateside fans, as well as summer 2015's opening runs. Um, something I thought really made uh, these these shows really stand out. Uh, in the good old summertime, uh, a cappella tune that came midway through the first set of 714. Um, Everything's Right, which was a... Uh, uh, great debut uh, that I think we both really enjoyed. Leaves came se- uh, midway through that first night, second set, as well as Love is What We Are and the Encore. That, that first night was just a really bizarre set list with a ton of songs kind of seemingly out of place and a ton of songs debuting. Um, and then Corona uh, on uh, uh, the second night of Northern Island and Thread debuting on the third night. I did dig Corona, and I really dig dig uh, Everything's Right. Yeah, Corona is a great song. Yeah. That's the first song on Trey's Traveler record. It's one of the better songs he plays with Tab. It's very well-composed, uplifting, big C major jam. I was very happy to see that. I liked Everything's Right. Um, the jam sounds exactly like the end of Dry the Rain by the Beta Band, which is also the intro music to this episode. If uh, Trey has finally discovered the three EPs, then so much the better. We're in for a treat because the beta band is awesome, and that's as good as it got for them. And just to uh, kind of wrap up the debuts from the first week, we had we had Tuesday uh, Trey Staple from 2005. That came out in his Shine Shine LP, right? Yes, Tuesday, second song on Shine, right? Yeah. Yes, and. Uh, Really enjoyable mic tune, crazy sometimes, with Fishman yelling behind him. That was great. In Pittsburgh, we had Marissa, another new mic-led song, and uh, Rise Come Together, uh, which came out of Mercury in a second set, which um, I think placement-wise, I think it could have come in a better place. Uh, on re-listen, it sounded a lot better coming out of Mercury than it did on the original stream. But I think that that has a really great place in the uh, in the uh, um, rotation going forward. I, I like that song a lot. It could be used as a set closer. It could yeah. be a good encore. Um, 
spinning back around just to uh, some highlights from the first five shows of tour. So 714, I think we can all agree, had a really strong opening set. And, and the tour in and of itself had a really strong opening set with that Everything's Right Jam, mm. uh, What's the Use opener, and a really, really great Limb by Limb um, and Blaze On to Close. What do we have in the second set? Was that the No Man's opener? No Man's open up, uh, 15 minute, very kind of minimalistic jam out of that that seemed a little similar to the um, end of that Wombat from uh, the Nutter Center. Right. Uh, Your Pet Cat made an appearance into Golden Mage and then back into Your Pet Cat, which uh, for however long or however short they uh, went away from the Your Pet Cat theme, I was happy to hear them start to experiment ever so slightly with the uh, chilling, thr- chilling Thrilling song. 7.15, second nine, had a Pretty rocking, but standard set one. Corona opener, really great second set opener. Amazing, mm-hmm. simple that we're covering in this uh, show. And then a fantastic Sense and Subtle Sounds into Cities. And, and Sense and Subtle Sounds on Relisten was um, a very, very uh, high-ranking jam for me from this tour. That just Yeah, that was about as, as type two as Sense gets. It was uh, yeah. very minimalistic, almost like... Um, Oh, intelligent dance music like some late 90s laptop type electronic groove. Yeah, when yeah. Uh, there's like that part where they almost do like a start stop jam and Trey's playing what sounds like he's on a laptop. It's very high register, but lots of effects going on with it. Um, right. That was kind of hearing that, it felt really easy for them to get into type 2 territory. And that was kind of a moment for me where I was like, okay, something else is going on here in terms of their jamming. They're, they're really going for something different on this tour. And then the third night, I think the first set of night three was your um, your two 555 Ocelot. It's definitely the most standard 3.0 looking set one. Yeah. And then you had the Karini set two opener, the one you got past the uh, dark and evil groove in it explodes into a variety of major keys and um, almost pays tribute to the Reading Down with Disease. At times it felt like they were taking like D major Almond Styles licks directly out of that Down with Disease and playing them at half speed, sort of giving it like a tropical flair. Yes. Sort of like you would take the Reading Down with Disease, but instead of running through a wall, you'd be laying back and forth in a hammock at some island resort like a banana daiquiri or a pina colada and then so that ended weekend one and we didn't quite know what to make of dayton or pittsburgh would they just be general uh, sets as they prepared you know for msg this weekend or would they actually try to top themselves and uh, i think that we would say at least dayton uh for for sure topped uh i would say a couple of the shows uh in chicago um, Pittsburgh had some great moments and some great efforts as well. Uh, Nutter Center, I would say, contains one of the best set twos of the last year and in some cases possibly of the last couple of years. Dayton's the one to beat. Yes, I think that's the show so far. And then finally, Pittsburgh last night. Very big Prince Caspian to close the first set. It's kind of almost challenge the Magnaball Caspian in terms of uh, rock majesty. I think I prefer the Magnaball Caspian, but it was still very, very good. Maybe at least a top ten version of that song. And uh, Brian, tell us about the huge bust out. Huge bust out. 20 minute plus jam off of Mr. Completely. The first since 7-15-2003. 380 shows. I think this is a song that at this point in time we had all just assumed was no more that we had heard it once in utah trey played it back when he was playing 45 minute long jams with tab it fit really well with the summer 2000 theme 2003 theme but that was it it was it was gone from there and uh i was really really excited to hear it come back that was one of those moments where i was streaming and um just kind of like Chills, big smile, uh, all the feels that you're looking for from um, a fish summer tour. Um, that actually, that's 
I would say my favorite jam of tour to this point. I re-listened to it today. It has moments where I feel like it uh, channels that Hampton Carini from 2013 where it's just like candy grooves and just like peaks and it's like they can't play a wrong note and you just got to imagine the entire arena was just kind of vibrating, pulsating with uh, uh, hippies dancing. Yeah, that was probably the most excited I've gotten streaming since Fish played last year at Bob Weir and then I heard Fishman counting off playing in the band and I was actually brushing my teeth at that time and I almost swallowed my toothbrush and I realized what was going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, that was uh, that was pretty exciting. So, some really great stuff all around. I don't think that we are uh, speaking any sort of revolutionary language right now. Um, really great, great start to the tour. Everybody should be super excited going into, uh, going into MSG. So now, on this Baker's Dozen Eve, or uh, you want to say Erev Baker's Dozen for those of uh, the Jewish persuasion. Um, what do you say about repeats? There's been a lot of stuff going around on Twitter and various Reddit groups and fantasy tour and what have you. People, they think that there's a chance that there might not be any repeats at MSG. I know that uh, you and I have very, very differing views on this. Um, what's your take to start? So... I read there was a really great article linked up on Facebook. I think it was on like Tuesday um, where a guy went through and numerically figured out what would need to happen for uh, for there to be no repeats. And I kind of – I didn't really see the, the point for them to put that much effort into it at that point in time. Um, but I've definitely come around on it. Uh, looking back at the five shows that have started the tour, um, I'm fully on board with – there's not going to be a single repeat at MSG. I think it's a goal that they have in mind. Um, I think that they're, they intentionally came out and played these five shows the way that they did um, to test and see if it was something that they could do um, and to test and see if it was something that they really wanted to go for. And I think that with the success of these first five shows, um, plus just the sheer badass quality to playing 13 concerts in one venue and not repeating one song um, kind of is is in line with the no covers new year uh, mindset that they went into 2013 with um, it's a statement for the band uh, and I, I definitely think that it's going to happen what, 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 what say you David I don't think it's going to happen I mean you really think they're only going to play one tweezer in 13 shows I mean my feeling is I mean, I hope, I want them to do whatever excites them, whatever challenges them, whatever they feel comfortable with. And I think that, I guess in the three or four show increments, like for example, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I wouldn't expect them to repeat any songs. Then when they take off that Monday, I think that'll probably reset the cycle somewhat. It just, for me to do no repeat strikes a little bit gimmicky, and it's something that that's not how they've ever operated. So I think they want to do what makes them comfortable, what they think could be fun. I think that if they really try to do no repeats, it requires a lot of planning in advance, and it's it's a little too much on their mind. And it just would require a level of planning that I don't think they really need or want to do. And I think it would be too much about the gimmick and less about the shows themselves. Added to the fact that... I mean, what? At some point, they're going to have to stretch some non-jam songs out to like 15, 20 minutes. I mean, if they want to go and do like a 20-minute bouncing around the room, that seems to me is kind of strange and kind of forced. And I don't want things to be forced. I just want them to have a good time. And I think that no repeats would not necessarily be part of that. Let's make this interesting. If it turns out that Fish plays no repeats, I... David Goldstein, next time we hang out, we'll buy you, Brian Brinkman, a six-pack of beer of your choice. If we go to a quality craft beer store and they have, like, you can pick your own six, I'll even let you do that. <laughs> Just because that's, that's how much I care. I will take you up on that. And, All right. And uh, I'll return the favor if they don't. And on that note, let's listen to The Simple.
That version of Simple from July 15th, 2017 from Northerly Island in Chicago. So for the first segment of songs, we're going to discuss the power of the badass riff, which that Simple absolutely has at the uh, very beginning of the jam portion, which we played. So when I heard this, the first thing that came to my mind was not so much metal, more so prog rock. Um, like progressive rock bands, especially the ones from the early 70s. So the first band and song I'm going to discuss here is one that is extremely near and dear to my heart. I'm talking about the Holy Trilogy of Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart, otherwise known as Rush. Now, frankly, we could have another... 17 podcast episodes that's just Dave Goldstein talking about Rush because that'd be very, <laughs> very easy for me to do. I mean, normally we take all kinds of notes and research from beyond the palm, but I'm just doing this totally off improv because I can. So when most people think of Rush, they think of uh, the early 80s stuff like Tom Sawyer and Limelight and the Spirit of Radio and, you know, any number of songs you could hear on um classic rock AOR stations. And those are all fantastic. We could talk about the different phases of Rush, how they kind of start off as Zeppelin copyists, then had their huge concept album phase, and they started to worship the police. But in particular, what I kind of want to talk about briefly is uh, a part of Rush's history that a lot of people, other than the hardcore fans, really don't pay much attention to, which is the records that they put out in the 21st century, all of which were pretty good. Um, starting in 2002, they put out an album uh, called The Vapor Trails. It was sort of their big comeback. It was the first they put out since 1996. Then I think in 2007, they put out an album called Snakes and Arrows, and in 2012, they put out what now looks to be their swan song, a concept album called Clockwork Angels. And the song that I'm going to play for you a little bit is called The Headlong Flight. And the reason I picked this song is it has a very heavy Getty Lee bass riff leading into um, an extremely, extremely badass riff by the guitarist Alex Lifeson, which actually harkens back to their 1975 song, Bastille Day. And really, for them at their age to make an album as good as Clockwork Angels in 2012 was really something else. It was a concept album involving uh, some sort of wanderer into a world of evil watchmakers. I think they may have even published like a comic book that go alongside this record. But, you know, it comes from an era of the band that's often overlooked, but they were very good at staying somewhat modern. I know they hired uh, this producer, Nick Rasculinitz, who I think was also Foo Fighters producer, and he's heavily featured in Dave Grohl's Sound City documentary. So he kind of got them to harken back to um, their more 70s riff-heavy sound. And it's actually an extremely badass rock record coming from a bunch of dudes that I believe at that point were in their early 60s. And after uh, they did a big 40th anniversary tour, and they're kind of on, they never formally announced a breakup, but Neil Peart, the drummer's got some terrible arthritis in his wrists and arms that I think keeps him from wanting to go on tour, and they all have families, so I think that could be the end of the road. But at any rate, let's listen to Headlong Flight by Rush off the Clockwork Angels album, which I highly recommend. And if you want to seek me out at a show or at me on Twitter and talk about Rush, then I will be more than happy to do so.
that uh, really tied in to the riff that Trey was laying down there in the simple, fantastic song from Rush. Uh, keeping with the theme, we're going to talk about a relatively new band that I believe as well has uh, sang their swan song, uh, though it hasn't really been announced. Uh, this is San Francisco's Cite, uh, spelled C-I-T-A-Y. Uh, they're a San Francisco band. They uh, recorded on Dead Oceans. Uh, and they were formed in 2004 by Ezra Feinberg as a studio project solely with Tim Green from the group The Fucking Champs. Um, this band, think Led Zeppelin rock riffs, Beach Boys style vocals, Grateful Dead vibe. Um, they are, and the song that we're playing here uh, is called Careful With That Hat off of their 2010 record, Dream Get Together, their third record. Um, this song that we're going to play kind of uh, symbolizes everything that you get from a uh, classic Cite song. There's a very recognizable guitar riff that uh, just kind of annihilates you from the start. And then this kaleidoscope of melodies and noise and vocals come in and there's layered vocal uh, harmonies that come in uh, midway through. It's a really, really beautiful sound, but it's also equally a very aggressive sound. It's kind of prog rock in a sense, but it's also uh, got a very uh, fishy vibe to it, if you will. Um, their songs are typically long instrumental sections dominate them, and then the uh, kaleidoscope type of vocals come in um, to form this very psychedelic pop rock sound um, that I've just always greatly enjoyed. I first discovered them when I was in Korea in 2009 uh, through our favorite uh, message board, Fantasy Tour, mm. um, and uh, immediately hit me exactly what I was looking for at that point in time from a kind of guitar experimentation, uh, very melodic type of sound, um, and uh, I've always just found myself coming back to this record. Um, they're somewhat kitschy. In the kind of same sort of way that Fish is sometimes, when Fish is in a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek mood, um, they're often self-indulgent in the best ways. You don't feel like these songs, they leave anything on the table, and they're really, um, uh, there's nothing really nuanced about a lot of these songs. But their records are expertly produced, and uh, they're really just like a fuck-off uh, summer rock album, just kind of... Whatever, uh, just kick any responsibilities aside. Um, they're the kind of record that you want to just drink a beer to or drive a car really fast to. Um, like I was saying when we started talking about them, I'm fairly certain that they've ceased to exist aside from a few one-off gigs. Um, I have always wanted to see them, but uh, there's little to no info about uh, their, uh, their, their tours or uh, uh, future records, recording patterns online. So if anyone has any information about Cite, about the happenings of Cite, I would love to hear about it. I would absolutely love to see this group, even if I had to travel for it. Um, mm -hmm. So I uh, we're going to play Careful with that hat right now. Uh, hope that you guys enjoy this.
Okay, Brian, thank you for that song. I was actually, uh, I did not realize that Satay was uh, associated with the fucking champs. That's certainly a band I listened to a bunch in the early 2000s and uh, their crazy array of Led Zeppelin riffs. So continuing on what I thought to be the prog rock theme for uh, this portion of The Simple, I'm going to talk about the band Yes!, and the song I'm going to talk about is The Fish, not The Fish from Vermont, but uh, The Fish, F-I-S-H. It is an instrumental from their Fragile album, a.k.a. the album with Roundabout and Long Distance Runaround on it. It's probably their most accessible album aside of um, their 90125, which came out in 1983, and that's the one that's got Owner of a Lonely Heart and Leave It. It was their big 80s comeback album so yes they've got lots and lots of records and lots and lots of members i think there's 19 different individuals in this world that can say they are once official members of yes and the only member that was in the band at the very beginning and survived every line of change was the bass player chris squire and i think his nickname was the fish uh, he wrote this instrumental, and unfortunately, he died two years ago, which was uh, sad because he had an incredibly unique, very verbally based sound that I kind of like to describe as a bunch of rubber Super Bowls is being thrown out into the world because just it bounces. His bass lines bounce like no other. He uses a pick. He's very, very dexterous. Um and charting, yes, lineup changes, that can be an entirely different podcast in of itself. But this version of the band featured John Anderson on vocals, Steve Howe on guitar, Bill Buford on drums, Rick Wakeman on keys, and Chris Squire on bass. The uh, era with Trevor Rabin and Alan White and Tony Kay that uh, produced Owner of a Lonely Heart, that would come much later in the 80s. So with yes, you get... Um, John Anderson's choir boy vocals, endlessly bubbly bass patterns, huge riffs, lots of time changes, not to mention ridiculously long suites and long song lengths. Um, the Umphreys McGee 2009 album Mantis is essentially them just trying to recreate a fragile era, yes, album. Whether they would agree with me or not, it's true. And uh, what's kind of funny about this band is that, yes, recently they put out seven different live albums from their fall 1972 tour. Um, unlike the Dead's Europe 72 tour, each one of these albums all has the exact same set list. And I've listened to them on Spotify and I've tried telling apart versions and I can't. Uh, <laughs> like Roundabout is within five seconds of eight minutes and 40 seconds on each of the albums. So I don't really know why they did this. Like, they sound good live. Maybe it was to just show off the precision. I don't know. It's kind of funny, but everything about Yes is excessive, so it makes total sense because they're very fun, totally overblown, but they made some fantastic songs, and nobody sounds like Chris Squire does. Thus, this tribute to him. So we're going to play The Fish off of the Fragile album.
Alright, so taking a break here from really aggressive rock and roll arena rock riffs. Um, we are going to take a step back and talk about some new music that's come out. Obviously, our last episode, we focused on our five favorite records of the year thus far. And the year continues to move forward, and there's been some great music that's come out uh, since we recorded, as well as in the time right before. Uh, so my record that I want to talk about from uh, uh, recent weeks is the new Fleet Foxes album, Crack Up. Um, I've been listening to this pretty much uh, when I'm not listening to Fish uh, these days, I listen to this record. I absolutely love it. And uh, had it come out probably two weeks earlier, it would have definitely made my top five at this point in time. Um, This is the third Fleet Foxes record and their first since 2011's Helplessness Blues. And this one is called Crack Up. Um, This is easily the most interesting album I've listened to all year. Uh, I was definitely wooed by Fleet Foxes in 2008 and early 2009. I just moved back to Chicago from Montana, and um, they just sounded like college to me, and they sounded like uh, so many small little music festivals I used to go to. Um, And, you know, about a year after the record came out, Uh, I kind of grew a little tired of it. Uh, I felt like I'd heard a few of the singles everywhere. Um, And when I knew that they were coming out with their sophomore album, I didn't have very high expectations for it. Um, And then Helplessness Blues came out, and it hit me at that really just perfect point, mid-20s. I wasn't really working a job I wanted to work. I wasn't exactly sure what was happening in my life at the time. I was about to get married, and Helplessness Blues really uh, sung to the kind of existential fears of a 26-year-old. This record, Crack Up, um, I don't know if I relate to yet. Uh, There's a lot of lyrics on here that require a lot of repeated listening. There are a lot of references to Civil War era generals as well as Roman emperors. Um, But I do know that I am constantly intrigued and constantly fascinated by the sounds that come out of this record, by the few one-off lines that I catch here and there, and just by the uh, complexity of the album overall. Uh, The opener, I'm All That I Need, uh, followed by Cassius, um, 3rd of May, uh, If You Need Me, Keep Time On Me, Uh, Fool's Errand and I Should See Memphis have really become some of my favorite songs of the year and not only do they each contain sections of just pure pure melodies that I just keep getting stuck in my head but they have all these other one-off kind of almost uh, experimental seemingly throwaway but you know somewhat fitting sections of music that make the song whole and give it kind of a totally different perspective so um, this record really, really has won me over in the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I know we've got a lot of stuff coming here by year's end, but uh, I could see this in my top 10 by the end of the year without question. I have to give the Fleet Foxes record one more chance. I know I love the first album, I liked Helplessness Blues enough. And when the third one came out, I know it sounded beautiful. The production was immaculate, but it's it's almost like an hour long, or even like a little over an hour. Yeah, it's fifty five minutes. So yeah, it definitely okay. requires your attention. It definitely requires your time and attention. Yeah, my thirty seven year old attention span for studio albums is not what it is for fish jams. Unfortunately, that's not Fleet Fox's problem. That's my problem. But I just I need to give it more time. And there's so many records and so much information that I kind of haven't given it the time it really deserves which i have to plus do plus fish is back on tour so how are you gonna exactly find <laughs> no that's we jest but it's true that's know, like fish jams take up time they like take time away from take time away from other bands which is why we have this podcast to keep you focused so the record i'm going to talk about is the new album from haim h-a-i-m called something to tell you um for those in the know haim is Three sisters from Los Angeles. It's Alana, Esty, and Daniela, I believe. Or just Danielle, Daniela, I'm not entirely sure. Um, so their first album came out in 2013 called Days Are Gone. 
And that album was kind of out of step in its time in that it was immaculately produced 80s Fleetwood Mac fantasy camp. So if hearing these young women in their 20s recreate 80s Fleetwood Mac was your thing, it was a fantastic record. That is totally my thing. Days Were Gone was excellently written, great production, great vocals, just an absolutely classic pop album that, despite not really being, I guess, in step with what was going on in the mainstream, I thought was endlessly enjoyable. And it took them four years to put out the follow-up, and the new one is, you know, kind of more of the same, but if there's no point in fixing the formula, then, you know, I'm plenty happy with more of the same. There's songs in there that sound so much like Christine McVie jams from 1987. You feel that she should be credited on the track. And really, I mean, I like 80s Fleetwood Mac. I have a thing for 80s AM gold and really well-produced albums. There's lots of ear candy. They make use of things like pitch-shifted vocals, different drum patterns, um, I believe it's Alana Heim is mostly the lead singer and guitarist, but they all take turns on vocals. And it's just, uh, it's pure ear candy. And if that seems to be a thing, and you should be listening to this album right away. It's Heim, something to tell you. All right, so transition our second segment here. Uh, we are going to talk about some staccato funk riffs while still keeping in mind um, the riff portion of the podcast. So, if you listen to the simple in the section that we played, it goes very, very quickly from that heavy, heavy progressive rock riff into almost like a Timberhoe jam. It really sounds like Fish was going to go into Timberhoe, and I would say within the last eight months, they would have gone back. They would have gone into Timberhoe. Um, but then it keeps moving forward into this kind of staccato section that fills out that midsection of the jam. And so we've got two songs that we think would be really good fit for this. The first one is from an artist and an album that we featured before, but um, because it's Brian Eno, he should be featured as many times as possible um, until you become obsessed and listen to his entire discography. Yes. Uh, he is an absolute, absolute living legend. This is uh, Sky Saw off of his uh, 1975 record, Another Green World. This is the opening track to his third record. Uh, this, I remember the first time I heard this was in uh, October 2009. Fish was killing a bunch of albums leading up to Festival 8. I threw on Another Green World uh, because it was on that chart and it lasted a couple of rounds. And uh, I knew Brian Eno because he produced a couple of my favorite U2 records, but I didn't really know Brian Eno. And so I threw on Another Green World and uh, this uh, Robert Fripp opening line, it uh, just completely sucked me in uh, and uh, I've been obsessed ever since. Um, So this record featured Phil Collins, featured John Cale, featured Robert Fripp, um, and the opening line, the riff that ushers in this record is really the kind of separation between what Eno was doing before he was a solo artist um, and uh, his ambient experimentation that came later in his career. Um, And Robert Fripp, I know that we've mentioned him before. We talked about him in episode one um, in regards to the Camden Chalk Dust and the kind of style that that was. Um, Robert Fripp is the lead guitarist or was the lead guitarist of Kim Crimson, which is a uh, Longtime favorite group of Trey's and Robert Fripp is a guitarist that if you like Trey's playing, you will like Robert Fripp. He is a huge influence on Trey and really one of the pioneers of kind of soundscape guitar playing. Fripp pioneered uh, a style that's known as Fripptronics, which essentially is um, the idea of looping a guitar. He essentially invented uh, the guitar loop. Um, And his guitar lines have this uh, kind of repetition to them. There's a little bit of staccato uh, here and uh, throughout, but there's very much of like a atmospheric ambient soundscape to them um, that you hear throughout another green world. Um, this song, Sky Saw, features instruments constantly changing their structure. Uh, it's a really dizzying sort of entry to the album. Uh, there's this very powerful riff, and then you kind of fall down the rabbit hole into the Another Green World that Eno's writing about. It's almost funky. 
It's somewhat uh, nearly danceable. Uh, the beat throttles behind synths, behind guitars, um, and what can really be only described as Eno vocals. This is, uh, I think, James Murphy on Get Innocuous trying to do his best Eno impression. Um, like I said, uh, this was a true turning point for Eno in his career. This was his abandonment of attempting to write pop songs and focusing on textures, soundscapes, and uh, true musical in- experimentation. In short, this is when Brian Eno became Brian Eno. And uh, really, if you've ever had any interest in like kind of weird experimental noises, sonic atmospheres that color records like Heroes or The Unforgettable Fire or the Dune soundtrack or numerous Genesis recordings or the Microsoft uh, opening sound or even that weird 2008 Coldplay LP, if that's your thing. What was it? Viva La Vida? Viva La Vida. Uh, the roots of all good those. Album. Yeah, yeah. had some really good points. Um, the roots of all those albums, of all those sounds, come from Brian Eno and come specifically from this record. Um, what's more, this guy just spawned a legion of imitators who have sought to alter mo- modern rock music through experimentation and a widening of the overall landscape with which musicians, pop musicians essentially, could explore. So, this is Sky Saw. Continuing um, our discussion of staccato funk, I'm going to talk about the organist Jimmy Smith. So basically, everything that you know about the Hammond B3 organ as a lead instrument can be traced to Jimmy Smith. Um, I think he was born, I want to say, 1928 or thereabouts. And in his early 20s, he was rumored to have purchased a Hammond organ rented a warehouse, locked himself in the warehouse with the organ, and then came out a year later, sort of supercharged and ready to go. He was incredibly prolific. I think he recorded nearly 40 sessions of Blue Note Records over eight years, starting in 1956. He was dubbed the Incredible Jimmy Smith. And on the cover of his classic album, The Sermon, he's got his he's wearing a turtleneck, he's got his arms stretched, this look on his face like, hell yeah! <laughs> he knows he's good. So, um, and Fish knows he's good because I know Fish, they covered the standard back at the Chicken Shack, um, I think a number of times in 1999, maybe uh, in 2000. I don't have the time to go consult right now. Um, 
Most of the things that he recorded in the 50s and 60s are varying degrees of excellent. Uh, some of my favorite records include the aforementioned The Sermon. I know he recorded uh, two albums with the guitarist Wes Montgomery in the early 60s for Verb Records. He put out one uh, with Kenny Burrell, the guitarist called Organ Grinder Swing. And the one I'm going to discuss here is from 1972 called Root Down Live. So... In the 1970s, he moved out to Los Angeles. Uh, and in 1972, he cut this live album at a club called the Bombay Bicycle Club. And it's very much rooted in early 70s funk and R&B. It even includes an instrumental version of Al Green's Let's Stay Together, um, as was common at the time, was to cover uh, what was on the radio. So you probably heard the song Root Down and think of the Beastie Boys because basically the Beastie Boys song on um, the O Communication album was then kind of sampling down and adding some beats and lyrics. So the original, what you hear in the Beastie Boys album, this live album has uh, that original version. And the song we're going to play here. It's called the first song on that album. It's called Sag Shooting His Arrow. And people are a little bit less familiar with this than they are Root Down. And it is absolutely smoking, fiery, staccato spunk in spades. And while it doesn't sound a heck of a lot like the staccato funk jam in the version of Simple, it is, um, it's there in spirit. And what's interesting about Jimmy Smith is that he was really playing right up to his death in 2005. Um, he was 79 years old when he died, and he was actually on tour. And I think um, he didn't show up for rehearsal, and they went back, and they just found he died in his sleep in his hotel room in Scottsdale, Arizona. So uh, if you enjoy the Hammond B3 organ, and I know you do, I know Paige McConnell certainly does, you could do much worse than seek out some Jimmy Smith. So we're going to play Sag shooting his arrow from the Root Down Live LP. there so uh, we want to thank you guys for listening to our 10th episode here we focused on the uh, 
Northerly Island Simple from July 15, 2017. Hope that you guys are enjoying the Baker's Dozen shows that have already happened and are enjoying the Baker's Dozen show that's going to happen tonight. Um, just taking a step here, uh, looking back on the songs that we featured. Uh, so we started off with Rush with Headlong Flight, moved right into Satay with Careful That Hat off their 2010 record Dream Get Together. Yes, The Fish, a tribute to Chris Squire, was up next. We moved into our second section here, staccato funk riffs as opposed to purely badass funk riffs. Um, or badass riffs, I should say. We had uh, Brian Eno's Sky Saw off of 1975's Another Green World. Be interested to hear what the next Another Green World track is we pick uh, in the future here. And uh, Jimmy Smith ended things for us with Sag shooting his arrow. Um, really just fantastic display of the Hammond B3 organ. So if you like what you heard here and you want to uh, shout back at us or have some other riffs that you think we should hear or just want to say that we're full of crap, please feel <laughs> free to do so. we got social media links. We're on Twitter, at underscore beyond the pond. On medium, medium.com slash beyond the pond. And what we do is we have a Spotify playlist. It's under uh, the Beyond the Pond podcast songs. I think if you're uh, paying for Spotify, you should be able to find it pretty easily. Uh, it's not quite as easy to find with the free version, but at us, we could definitely put it, um, help you find it. What we do is that we try to put up all the songs we featured in the episode in the Spotify playlist. Now that we are 10 episodes in, the playlist is getting quite robust. Absolutely. Um, And so this episode, obviously coming out here on July 25th, our publishing structure uh, really works out nicely with every other Tuesday. Um, So we're going to come back here in two Tuesdays, which should be August 8th, where we will be uh, discussing the Baker's Dozen in full. Uh, I'm picking a jam from that. And based off this summer tour uh, thus far, uh, these first five shows in the Midwest, we should have a lot of jams to pick from. So uh, definitely come back for episode 11 in a couple of weeks here. I know I am excited because I am going to the Baker's Dozen show tomorrow night. Absolutely. That'll be yes. Uh, be webcasting this weekend and then I'll be up there the second weekend I can't wait but at any rate very much if you got to this point in the episode we thank you very much for listening we hope that your Baker's Dozen summer shows are enjoyable ones and on that note I'm David Goldstein I'm Brian Brinkman and tune in in two Tuesdays and come back and join us for we will once again go beyond the pond.